running boom of the 70s came during simpler pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runners Reunion Podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to another uh, episode of the Runners Reunion Podcast. For those of you who are keeping score, uh, this is season two, episode six. We are delighted in the run up to Boston to have with us a name well associated with that storied marathon. 75 years young, today we are delighted to be joined by a three-time Olympic trials qualifier and somebody who's had close to a 50-year affiliation with the marathon in a variety of capacities. For those of you who are really students of the sport, maybe you figured it out, but if you haven't, we are delighted to welcome 1976 Boston Marathon winner, Jack Fultz. Jack, thank you for joining us on the Runners Reunion podcast. Well, Grant, thanks a million for having me. I'm delighted to be here and uh, looking forward to having a conversation with you guys. And uh, you, uh, you, you aged me. I'm only 74. <laughs> maybe I, uh, maybe well, I, maybe, okay. maybe, maybe, I, I, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I, I, maybe I wrote my, uh, my uh, um, birth date down illegibly. So. <laughs> uh, Wikipedia. I'm blaming it on Wikipedia. How's oh, there that? we go. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I so, blame Wikipedia on a lot of stuff. There we go. I, I had 1948, so maybe my math was off, but, but right. be that as it may. So um, we have so much to cover. So I'm going to kind of uh, break tradition um, with only a, a very light touch of some of these early years. Um, as I understand it, you were born and raised in Franklin, Pennsylvania. Is that right? That okay. is right. Now, for those of you who have a historical bent, uh, I learned that uh, one of the Franklin's claim to fame was that it was the site of the third ever oil gusher in 1860. Now, Jack doesn't have anything to do with oil, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and in the, in the list of famous citizens coming out of Franklin, PA, Jack is in the top 10. So that just gives you a little appreciation for this tiny town in Appalachian Mountains, I, is that fair to say? in that neck of the woods uh yeah well the people in central pennsylvania and further east call us uh, flatlanders uh, because flatlanders. they're fairly close to ohio and the people in ohio call us hill folk and hill the people folk. from hmm. franklin say the nw actually stands for nowhere rather than <laughs> northwest pa so <laughs> anyway guys barbs everywhere barbs everywhere wow it's a tough crowd well maybe that maybe that says something right there now i thought it was kind of interesting again i'm i'm referring to wikipedia so i don't know if you've if you've got this accurate or not there jack you might want to check it out okay it it, it indicates that you're the second youngest of seven kids and that wouldn't have been necessarily striking other than literally our last on our last podcast we talked to greg lautenslager who was the second youngest of uh, eight i believe it was mm -hmm. and he regaled us with the story of one of his first running memories which was literally around the house do you have a story <laughs> like that that informs any of those early running days or which was not training of course but it was just running well, I could make something up similar uh, to Greg's story about run, running, uh, running away, escaping my brother's wrath 
because they were all older than me. And there was, as you can, as you guys know, sibling rivalry and a little torture since I was the, uh, the smallest. And maybe, maybe I have that to credit uh, with whatever speed I was able to finally generate. Now, what was the age difference between your next oldest sibling and you? Uh, we were the, the five of the youngest of the seven were two years apart, respectively. Okay. So my, my youngest sister is two years younger than me. My next sister is two years older than me. And then another brother's two, another brother's two. And then my oldest sister and oldest brother, who's deceased now, they're uh, three, four, five years uh, further up. So, so once my folks got into a rhythm, they just, boom, started popping us out every two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but it's interesting. So it wasn't your sisters that might have had an influence. It was just the fact that you were literally the kid brother um uh for yeah. those older the older boys and the and now being pennsylvania uh just like uh greg was ohio was football king in those early days in, absolutely. in your house absolutely yeah. it was and my my brothers played and so being the last of the four four my oldest brother only played basketball but my next two played everything basketball football track and so of course i had to play football also if you're an athlete we didn't have cross country in the fall so it was oh. the only sport we had was okay. was football so yeah i played five year eighth grade ninth grade 10th grade 11th grade and 12th grade my senior year you know it almost the football almost ended my running career before it really even got started i got whacked uh had a blocking assignment the opening kickoff of our first game my senior year and i went down had to plow into a guy twice my size we both went down and when i got up i limped off the field and i'm wondering gee a charlie horse in my leg well that turned into a um about a month-long investigation of what's going on cortisone shots the whole thing ended up uh, was a calcium deposit growing in the muscle of my quadricep I ended up in the hospital for almost a week I was real lucky they were able to dissolve it but I couldn't bend my leg for a month and um, it turned out that's what it was but uh, so I got lucky you know, they, I mean, my doc just wasn't sure how to treat it. He just throw, oh, let's throw you in the hospital and pump you full of drugs or something. So it's probably a lot of steroids to dissolve that calcium deposit. So wow. I lucked out on that one. So no cross country, but I, I, and just to complete the, that little anecdote though, you obviously were on special teams, but if you got off the bench, otherwise, what was your position or positions plural? Yeah, no, I played, uh, played defensive halfback and okay. offensive flanker. Okay. So, and, and I, so, I played the rest of the game. I, but I, you know, I, I yeah, they, but they didn't put me in for, uh, for any regular stuff. I was on all the suicide squads. Okay. Know, kickoff received, the punt team, all those. So I just, I, you know, I was gimping around. Wow. And, you know, you're full of adrenaline. We're young and, and th thinking we're invincible or whatever. I mean, they, 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 I told the coach, I said, I got a Charlie horse or something going on here. He says, ah, you'll be all right. Get out there. Yeah, okay. So it was, it was one of those deals. Yeah, one of those deals. <laughs> Turns out it was the only game we lost that that whole season by one point. <laughs> so I hope Jack, it was because that was a game I played. <laughs> Jack, I, I, I got to say, I've known you for over 20 years. I never knew you played football. So here we go. This is already a win-win, uh, you know, right. from my perspective. So so let me ask you this, though. Okay, you didn't, there was no such thing as cross country. I'm guessing there's definitely no such thing as indoor track. What about outdoors? When did you begin to kind of get, or did you even do and, and compete in track. Oh, oh, I I did. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I delivered newspapers from the time I was in fourth grade every morning, riding my single speed Schwinn bike up and down the hills of Northwestern Pennsylvania. So little did I know I was developing my cardiovascular system. 
uh, and whatnot. So uh, I very much enjoyed running. Before I got a bike to deliver newspapers, I ran everywhere I went. Mm. So, you know, I was a little, little zipper around the neighborhood and stuff and enjoyed playing those kinds of games. So I was developing as a young athlete un unwittingly, completely. So ninth grade was our first formal uh, kind of track stuff. And they had a freshman relay, two 110-yard legs and two 330-yard legs. So it was a half mile. So I was the distance runner and I ran the 330, right? So, but, um, but in football camp and, um, you know, because of all this um, cardio development uh, that I didn't realize we had, everybody on the team, you know, linemen and everybody had to run two miles every morning um, in football camp. And I'd come in a half mile ahead of everybody, right? <laughs> so this is the beginning of our senior year before that injury happened. And the coaches said, gee, folks, we're going to move, we're going to move you up to the half mile or the mile track because okay. that was a quarter miler up until then oh and, no kidding so you had yeah. a gear but you well no, no that was one no. of the reasons probably they wanted to move me up not only because i was now demonstrating some aerobic capacity and and endurance but um they also realized i wasn't particularly all that fast for the four 400 i think i ran 54 point or something on the old cinder tracks so it was that's, okay that i was right. wasn't i wasn't going to go to state or anything so so, so let me ask you this then so, okay, so you've had a measure of success, broadly mm -hmm. defined, um, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Did your thinking about, or, or if you had to pick for yourself, uh, um, looking back over those years, when do you think running first took hold, that the idea of being a runner or that really identification that is something that you either felt an aptitude, an interest in, that kind of thing? Probably, I actually, my freshman year when I was on that relay, because one of my, uh, my, the brother who was four years older than me, he was, I think he went to the state championship on in the 880, uh, the, now the 800, of course, but, um, and he was, he, he was good. He ran about two minute, two minutes back then on the cinder tracks was pretty good. And, and I liked to run, as I say, I played, uh, played other sports. I, I preferred basketball above the, all the others. But, um, but you know, I was only so good. I wasn't all that fast. I couldn't dunk the ball, couldn't even hit the, grab the net. Um, so I loved, I loved, you know, playing the other sports, but I was really finding the greatest success in running. And you get that social reinforcement. You know, I think that's just, that's pretty common knowledge that the things that we get reinforced the most socially are the things that we're going to tend to continue to repeat and, uh, and go back to. So I, I kept doing that. And so athletically, everyone knew I did all sports, but that I was, probably better at running than anything else so anyway yeah, john yeah so jack did uh, the coach see something in you like say your freshman year where i'm not sure if you could score your freshman year but that way you were like keeping up with the seniors and you know i know that like my freshman team was really good and we we're like almost better than the varsity team were you like you know running sort of training with the juniors and seniors and beating the sophomores and you know we were um, like they were like raising eyebrows like wow this kid's pretty good yeah, no, I can't say I was coming across as any kind of a prodigy. Um, you know, I think they knew I was pretty good on the freshman team. I was, uh, I was the anchor leg and I'd have somebody challenge me a little bit every now and then, but pretty much that was my position. But, but we, we worked out with the varsity team and I was not, not I was not beating a bunch of the varsity guys necessarily. As I say, my sophomore and junior year, I ran the 400 meter um, or the 440, so that they could run me on the relay teams and things like that. And uh, that was pretty much it. It wasn't until the end of, of our my junior year that they um, the state started a, a, a two-mile relay. 
and it was an exhibition event then, as, as was the two mile. <laughs> We're going way back. Wow. Yeah, at least this is in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah. So um, so they said, okay, look, let's take you quarter milers and have you run the half mile, see if we can put together four half milers and and go to state. And that's when I ran my first uh, first 880. And uh, yeah, I ran the 203, I think, on that time trial. So I said, okay, that's, that's going to get us there. And it did. So the four of us uh, went to the district meet where it was an exhibition event. And we took one, we were in the top two. I think we got second and that qualified us. We went to state. This was a big, big deal for yeah. us going to the state uh, championship meet. And I went uh, again on, on that relay team. I don't even remember how we did, but I think I ran the 201 anchor leg uh, at, at the state okay. meet. And that was, I, I think that was still on the cinder track. It was in the Beaver Stadium at Penn State. And so okay. this was oh my gosh. big wow. stuff to us. You know, yeah, we yeah, yeah, for God sure. land. So and, if- anyway. Yeah. So uh, what this is suggesting is that you graduated, I think, in uh, 66, right? Right. From high school. Yeah. So you weren't coming out of high school with some sort of recognition that made you, you know, that people are knocking down doors or or anything like that. One, you hadn't found your natural distance. That's for sure. Well, I had nobody knocking on my right. No one was knocking on my door. But I mean, I had I had finally come around my senior year. I went to state in the mile. I set the school record. And I was second in the district championship, and and so I was I was known in in our little area as as being a being a, a pretty good runner, but yeah, I, I would not nobody knocking down my door. I was a walk on in college. My first so year. let's get there. Let's get okay. there. So, Pennsylvania University of Arizona. Okay, mm-hmm. that's pretty far apart. How yeah. how did that how did that machination uh, take place? Well, I decided actually late in, in my senior year to go to a four-year school. I was going to go to a one-year trade school with my best buddy, who was also a runner on the team. And uh, we, we played, did everything together. And he was going to this school. I said, yeah, that sounds like a little more fun. But all my, you know, my two brothers had all gone to four-year colleges and, okay. and my parents wanted me to. But I, so I decided kind of late in the game, no, I better, I better go to a four-year school. Plus, I want to continue my running. And I'd love to get a scholarship, but that was just a pipe dream at the time. So, um, so I applied to a couple of schools and because of the running, I said, I may as well apply to some nice weather schools. And I had, I had an uncle who lived in Tucson, Arizona. So I said, yeah, to Arizona, applied to Florida, I think either Florida State or University of Florida. And I get into both of them, but I get into, into Arizona first, but because of the late start, I started mid-year. So uh, in second semester. So, um, so second semester after you're graduated from high school. Correct. Yeah. So that fall, I just stayed home and, and got a job and worked and, you know, worked in a, in a, a factory. I were, I mean, I worked in the office of a big factory manufacturing plant, Northwestern Pennsylvania. That's what kept the, the economy going. And it was the same company my dad worked for, but in a different location. Okay. Anyway, so I did that all fall and I ran, I played basketball at the Y and just had a good time. I was already accepted in school, but all I had, I could just, all I could do was wait. So I okay. hung out with my buddies that's, that were still in the area. And, uh, you know, after the holidays, I uh, went out to Minnesota for a, a month with my buddy who was at that trade school and then flew to Arizona. So I went from flew 30 below zero to, to 70 degrees in February or January of that year and, uh, and walked into the coach's track office after I got situated and get into my dorm room and got enrolled in all my classes 
walked into the track coach's office and said, hey, I'm Joe Schmo from Pennsylvania. I had my Chuck Taylor high top Converse basketball shoes on. That's what we use as running flats in high school. And uh, wow. you know, a pair of gray shorts and gray t-shirt and said, I want to go out for your track team. <laughs> he looked at And me, what did he say? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so he asked me, uh, you know, he asked me my times. At least he gave me, yeah. gave me that. And uh, as John Parker said in, in the book, uh, um, Once a Runner, um, you know, every, every runner was a 434 high school miler. And that's exactly what I had run in high school, a 434 mile. So, um, so lo and behold, although the book was, was yet to come, uh, but, but there I was and I gave my times and he said, well, I mean, he was, he was diplomatic about it, but pretty much he was, he diplomatically said, you're kind of a dime a dozen and, you know, there's not a whole lot I, you could do for us. So there's not a whole lot I can do for you, but you're welcome to run with the guys if you want on the team. And they're going to show up here this afternoon at three o'clock. If you show up, you're welcome to run with them. And I, boy, of course I was there at quarter of three and uh, ready to go. So uh, that was it. I, but that I, was it. They looked, they looked at me kind of cross-eyed when I showed up in my Converse. Chuck Taylor's. used to run with them. Run. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to comment. That's the beauty of running, right? So if you showed up for a basketball team or a soccer team or something like that, you, you'd never see the light of the day. But with running, you control your own destiny and you had a chance to prove yourself. That's yeah, that's a very good point. And but because the guys were so welcoming and, you know, they were just you know, hey, come come along, you know, and they would pull me along on these runs. I'd do everything I could to keep up with them. And but I just kept showing up and um, and refused to refuse to lose, so to speak. So when you think about those days, um, they could have easily just kind of said to you, hey, you're half you're in here half year. First of all, you've, you've missed the fall. You've missed everything else. You never mm -hmm. run cross country. How did you know? But it sounds like they welcomed were they mostly american was this did you have any or was there any foreign influence at this point uh there uh, not, not not at the university of arizona there were there were you know carrie pierce from australia was a was a top runner and he was at at a um see utep then mm -hmm. in el paso which was in the same conference whack so his name was you know bandied about i didn't know any of these guys back when i first walked in there yeah Course, uh, but all the guys, all the guys on the team were either local Arizona runners, good high okay. school runners, or from Southern California. Some of them, a couple of them were, were junior college transfers. So, and they all were running times that, you know, were just my mind, just, I was gaga, right? Mm -hmm. Over the times these guys were running, but I just kept running and they had some little uh, uh, all comer mile races at the end of the track meets. They used to have dual track meets back then, you know, um, you know, USC. We're came not that old. There's We're not that old, Jack. We, we remember those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, here I am running around, uh, warming up to run these uh, these um, all-comer mile races. And I got my time down to the mid-420s uh, that uh, then. And But I'm war I'm running behind O.J. Simpson and Lee Calhoun, you know, when they're warming up because we have a dual meet with USC. And and everyone knew what those who those guys were. And I was just, I was in seventh heaven uh, having all these great experiences. But anyway, so... So I finished out that year and came back home and worked all summer and ran. I had some running buddies and we just ran and ran and ran. I now had the bug. I had a pair of running shoes. Uh, they were taped. Which on. were? What were they? They were one of the guys on the team donated them to me because they he'd already worn them out. They were Adidas Gazelles. Oh yeah, remember those the classics? Gazelles? And they they classics. literally were taped. Was uh, athletic tape was holding the bottom to the top <laughs> but, before so anyway well yeah. it's interesting so that summer i was home working and and finally 
it was either that summer or the following summer. But, you know, we were still ordering our shoes from Blue Ribbon Sports Catalog, you know, Phil Knight's original. Um, original company, right? Stuff, oh, right? wow. Talk about the beginning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm jump, I'll jump around here a little bit, but I was still at Arizona when when we were ordering these shoes. And, and that's what we were wearing, the old, uh, um, what, what people now know as ASICs, but back then it was Onitska, right? right. It was the name of the company. Right. Americans called it Onitsuka, but it was Onitska. Anyway, so but but as you guys all remember that the, the the there was no midsole cushioning to them oh, all, God, and no. it was like a paper, um, you know ping pong paddle cover or right, table yeah, tennis right, cover, yeah, very yeah. thin, no cushioning. But anyway, so in this factory that I worked in, a lot of the I had to clean up. I was a, kind of a janitor, and a lot of the product was wrapped up in bubble pack. So you know, one one day I'm I'm standing in a in a pile of this bubble bubble pack material, throwing it into big trash cans and i'm really it's like a little trampoline boing boing and i said oh my god a light bulb went off so i cut out a pair of insoles a bubble pack put them in my running shoes and i would go out i worked the second shift so i'd get off at 11 o'clock at night and i'd go out for a six eight mile run because i was now into my running and uh and it was and i was wide awake of course after work so um so that's when i do all a lot of my running that summer and i'm wearing these these insoles of bubble pack and I'm it's like a pogo. So I'm bouncing down the road. I, oh my God, it was an epiphany. Uh, ahead so, of your time, Jack. Totally ahead of your time. Way ahead of my time. I was, this is yeah. 10 years before uh, uh, the guys introduced uh, aerosols to, to Nike, who, of course, wisely adopted the, the <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. That's, that's a really, fascinating uh, you know, story. Of course, that's... the bubbles would break. So I'd have to, after, so I cut out well, a, whole, you had a... a whole stack <laughs> right. of them. And, yeah, and on my long stuff. runs, I'd carry an extra pair. And halfway through, the bubbles had broken. I'd slide another pair in and bounce on <laughs> down the road. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Jack, what's interesting here is so it, I, I get stuck on the, on the dates a little bit. Okay. So okay. you graduate in 66. So technically, it's 67 when you start at Arizona, right. mm -hmm. halfway through. And you, you're home for that summer. So that's summer of 67. You're now into 68. You right. finish spring term of 68. Anything notable um, outside of the macro? There's a lot happening macro. I mean, this yeah. is Martin Luther King. This is Bobby, you know, Bobby Kennedy. Everything is going on. But what's happening with you and, and at Arizona? Well, the fall term of 68, I go back and I'm second semester freshman, but it's a fall term. And I'm so I run my okay. first. Oh, six, uh, oh, not 67, 68. OK. Yeah, so, right. So or, okay. let me see. The, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Fall of 67. Seven, into okay. the 67, 68 year. Right. So so it's fall 67 and I come back to school and I'm second semester freshman. And right then that year, the NCAA changed the regulations. Up until then, freshmen were not eligible for varsity sport, but they changed the ruling for that year and said uh, freshmen in minor sports, which cross country was considered a minor sport, were now eligible for varsity. Aha. And so the coach now, all of a sudden, he wanted, he just needed bodies. bodies. So all of a sudden I showed up again and he said, ah, hello, John, he called me John. That's my, my real name. And um, and he gave me a locker and, you know, all of a sudden now I'm training with the with the big guys, the cross country team. And I feel like now I'm be, I'm accepted. I have a locker. I'm official part of the team. <clears throat> and I run with these guys again. They had never run cross country, but I ran all the races. And at the end of the year, they added up all the all the scores, all the points. And I was seventh man on the team and seven guys get varsity letters and varsity jackets. 
and I'm walking around the University of Arizona, BMOC, big man on campus. I have a varsity jacket <laughs> and being down there all the time in the fall, you know, you get, to, we got to know all the football players who were the superstars. So I'd be walking across campus. I'm in my jacket, right? at 70 degrees. I still have my big varsity <laughs> jacket on and I see Ron Gardine, you know, one of the superstar football players. And we know each other now we are, Hey Ron, how you doing? And my buddies who I'm walking with, they just, their jaws drop. Oh my God, you know, Ron Gardine on a first name basis. So I was playing this up to the hill. I was loving it all. And uh, so that worked out very well. And I was, I was elated. And then the next, you know, and then I ran spring track and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which would yeah. be 68, spring of 68. Correct. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. So my times are still coming down and finally they're coming down and I'm beating some of the guys on scholarship. Okay. And uh, so I went in and, and, you know, education was relatively inexpensive, certainly compared to today's cost, but it was still, I was paying out of state tuition and my parents, you know, I was next to youngest. My dad was blue collar worker. So they were digging deep in their pockets and I had a couple of little tiny scholarships, but so I went to the coach and said, I need some financial help. You know, we, I'm beating some of the guys on scholarship now or running with them. He said, if I had it, I'd give it to you, but I don't scholarship money's all gone right now. If something opens up, I'll give it to you. So after my fourth semester, uh, the end, uh, which was the fall, fall of 68, season, yeah. fall 68, and I moved up to fifth man on the team, got another jacket, the whole thing. So things were going well, but he didn't have any money for me. And so mm-hmm. when I had gone back home, <clears throat> I talked to some of the small schools in, in my home, my home area, uh, Western, um, Northwestern PA, Eastern Ohio, Mount Union College was a very good D3 school. Football, uh, known for its yeah. football program these days. Football, right? yes, but also oh, okay. but back then cross country too. They were okay. always contenders for national championship D3. And uh, so I went over and talked to the coach there and he listened to my times and my story and said, yeah, if you want to transfer here, I'd give you, I don't know how much he was giving me, but he was giving me some money, a lot of financial help then. <clears throat> now D3 schools don't offer track uh, athletic scholarships, but they he was offering me some. I think it was, maybe it was D2, I can't remember. But anyway, he was offering me a good ride. So- um, so I transferred back east and left Arizona. It was hard to leave. I loved it out there. I had a great time. I had a lot of great friends. <clears throat> the running was going well. Okay. But, um, so I was coming back. And sure enough, this rolls on into maybe the next uh, thing you were going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so again, we want to be cognizant of time here. Um, I'm going to kind of approach it this way, perhaps. When you think then... Um, when you think of the Vietnam era, which you're very much a part of now in six to fall of 68, we've had, you know, really tumultuous spring with, uh, you know, MLK and Bobby and all of that stuff. Yeah. Maybe it affected you, maybe not. But now you're in the process of transferring when things are really not going well in South Asia. Asia. Mm-hmm. How does that feed into the narrative? Well, it was huge. I mean, this is so the, the, the draft system and the selective service had not yet started or the, um, the lottery system. So we, so every 18 year old male in the United States had to register um, when you turned 18 and you get your, your selective service card. If you're in college, if you're married, you know, have kids, whatever, you got deferments or, you know, um, good old uh, uh, President Trump with his, his, his heels, his bone spurs or something like that. Uh, right. Uh, he had a 4F. So it was a medical deferment and guys would do anything and everything to get these, to get out of, of the draft. Um, but if you're in school, you're a 2S was, it was the classification. And I had my 2S deferment, but because I transferred and usually you were reclassified every October and 
if you're in school, you were going to be in school. And so you get reclassified. You tell them I'm still in, in, in enrolled in school. So you get, you, they would renew it for a year. But I was out of school now from January to February, and I wasn't starting in this new, at this new school, Mount Union, until March, because they were on a quarter system. Anyway, minor details here. So I was out of school for two months, and during that time, I was to be reclassified for the year, and they asked me my status. I said, I'm transferring schools. I'm going to start this other school next month, but you're not in class right now. Well, no, not technically. Okay, then you're 1A, and 1A was classification means you're ready for draft. And you had 30 days to appeal your classification. I didn't read the fine print. So I never appealed that thinking I'll be in school before I get drafted. Mm. Well, the 31st day <laughs> after my reclassification, I got a letter from the selective service. Um, welcome to the United States Army. And this was, you're right, 1968 was the Tet Offensive and things were hotter in Vietnam than they ever had been prior to that. And yes, uh, you know, all the assassinations, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, it was just, it was a horrific thing. And there were horrible race rights going on in Los Angeles. And, you know, the country was really in turmoil. But anyway, so, um, so boom, I got drafted and I was going in. And once you got drafted, you weren't allowed to join any of the other services. Your only other option was to sign up for the army for three years. If you went in as a draftee, you had to go in for two years. And we all considered that a one-way, you know, a, a one-way ticket to Vietnam probably. And so we, you know, Guys were doing everything, going to Canada, signing up as conscientious objectors, whatever. Billy Rogers did that and served, you know, I'm all for, for universal service. I think everybody can serve the country in one way or another, but it need not be and shouldn't be military by decree. Anyway, that's what it was back then. And so, but I was, because I had ROTC at Arizona, it was a land-grant college. So all freshmen and sophomores in all the land-grant colleges around the country had to take ROTC, reserve officer training. And uh, so I had, you know, I knew how to spit polish my shoes. I knew how to put on a uniform. I had the kind of a sense of military bearing. So I leveraged that as best I could to convince the Coast Guard recruiter to, to knocking somebody off his list, which he had already had completed for the month and let me in because the Coast Guard only had 35,000 guys. It was small in the New York City Police Department. And the recruiters, recruiters in the army and the Marine, they, they didn't care as long. If you were breathing, you were a body and they, they were going to take you. And the Coast Guard, they tried to be a little more selective if they could be. And so, I, you know, leveraging that made me maybe just a little more primed than some poor kid who was like me, just trying to stay out of Vietnam, but he had only, it wasn't. Wow. High so you're, anyway. are you at home at this point when all of this was going on in Pennsylvania or yeah, you I'm back kind in, of? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm back in Pennsylvania. I had to go up to Erie to go through all this whole process. <clears throat> But anyway, I talked, so I talked my way in and he signed me up. And we jokingly say I could never run for president. That skeleton would come out of the closet, right? So that I was able to get into the Coast Guard when I officially, legally was, they were not allowed to, to do that. But so, okay, so. Well, he predated my enlistment paper to predate my draft notice. That was the only way to make it official. <laughs> so, so I went back to the, my draft board and said, well, I'm all, I'm, I, I signed up for the, uh, for the Coast Guard before I got my draft notice. To make it official. So Statute of limitations, I, I think, is at play here. Yeah, so, that's, yeah, exactly. So, so, anyway. okay. so you're in the Coast Guard. Where mm -hmm. are you stationed? Well, I had boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey for two months. And then I had six months of electronic school on Governor's Island in New York City, New York City. which was fabulous. You know, you couldn't go to you couldn't go into a war zone if you were in the Coast Guard, because even though it's military, it's under the Department of Transportation. Now it's under Homeland Security. 
but uh, because, and it serves a peacetime function, you know, search and rescue at sea, long range aid to navigation. That's really what the Coast Guard was set up for. But there were Coasties in Vietnam running, they, they, what the, they were called river rats, you know, mm -hmm. riding the small boats up and down the river and stuff. But you had, if you were in the Coast Guard and you wanted to go over there, you had to volunteer and you certainly could. And you were under the Navy, Naval Department. But you had a domestic, there was an, a major domestic agenda for that branch of the service, which no, was uh, right. the, the Absolutely. calling card. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. Okay. So, so we you know, felt we were serving a, a real purpose there. But anyway, so after my electronic school, um, I, I did well enough in that academically that I got my choice of what available stations were in my class. And, um, you know, I could have ended up on an icebreaker. I could have ended up out on the end of the Aleutian Islands in electronics, or I could have gone to one of the two or three um, radio stations that the Coast Guard had. And so because I got my choice of that, um, I chose Washington, D.C. It was actually Alexandria, Virginia. Ah, okay. Yeah. So if I say D.C. Roadrunners Club, Mm -hmm. what three things come to mind for you <laughs> what three things <laughs> well some great memories that i had down there running for, with the dc uh dc roadrunners they had one of the very few developed road running programs back in 1969 around here and so there were races every weekend around much so of the 69 way so you're in, you're in alexander you're in the nation's capital region in 69 okay exactly right right yeah so, um, so I somehow or other, I'm, and I'm out just doing my own running, you know, I'm running off base and just running to stay fit. There was, you know, I didn't know of any opportunities and I, and I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I ran into, to a local runner and he was probably a member of the DC Roadrunners, And, um, and somehow I learned that they had these races and they had, there was a national program. Maybe you remember this, it was called the two mile run for your life. And it was encouragement for anyone and everyone to go run. And, and so local communities and towns would hold these things. And every week or every other week, they'd show up at a local high school track and run, a, run two miles. Everybody would get timed. And then down there, so they had that. That was part of this national program. And then they would have a second race afterwards. And it could be anything out on the roads. Four mile, a six mile, an eight or 10 miler or something like that. Every now and then they'd have these um, two-person relays. It was mostly two guys. There were there were very few women, you know, running as part of this stuff back then. But um, but it was great. It was, so I had it was an escape from military life. I go out and interact with mm -hmm. with civilians, and um, even though I had a lot of uh, was had some really good buddies in the service. But anyway, so that's really really where I got my start running on the roads, uh, running road races. So let me just take us a, a moment to pause. You've had a total of two cross-country seasons, what many right. people would consider the really the, the introduction to distance running outside of the track. Mm -hmm. And so you really started cutting your teeth much more on the roads far yes. in a way earlier than most people would in some ways, you know, relative I, to. Yeah, I was I was 20. I was 21, 22. Yeah. When I started running on the roads. Yeah. 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 Now, did you bring with you from home those uh, those bubbles uh, to put in your shoes, or, or what were you what were you uh, the, the using those days? Yeah, yeah no, no, I think I, I kind of ran out of bubble pack or whatever, and uh, so that kind of went went by by the side. Uh, but I was uh, I was now an advocate of doing that, so I would run on soft surfaces through my okay. entire career. I would always, whenever it was, uh, it was just obvious to me that that was much more forgiving. And when you're running on the grass, you actually had to work a little harder because you're not getting a rebound from the roads. Right. But it also was protective. You know, I'd go out and do right. a hard workout on the track or on the on the on the fields or something like that. 
and they just didn't beat me up as much. So, okay. So you, one memory is how the DC Roadrunners Club basically introduced you to this whole new world. Right. Another, yeah. a second, a second thing that you, second, do you connect it uh, with you, people? You connect it with people, uh, yeah, friends, well, mentors. Still very prominent in, in the running world. Phil Stewart, who uh, owns Road Race Management and okay. is the race director of the um, um, Cherry Blossom 10 Miler. Um, he and I trained together and ran together a lot as part of the group. Once I got to know those guys, it took me a little while to get to know them. And uh, let's see who. So, uh, okay. Sorry, go ahead. So you're, uh, I was going to say, so you've got Cherry Blossom, Phil Stewart there. You, you've been introduced to the roads. Mm-hmm. And when are you now thinking about this, uh, you know, getting running distances, say, beyond 10 miles, even possibly this thing called the marathon? Is that coming at this point? Are they people talking about it? Where is that? that coming? It started coming. Yeah. So again, I, I get down to D.C. in the uh, late summer, fall of 69, uh, all through 70. I'm running these road races and whatnot. Probably the max may have been 10 miles, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then through that fall. Uh, the distances started getting longer and longer of 70 leading up to a marathon in February of 1971. It was the Washington birthday marathon. And um, I hadn't really caught the bug and, and connected with all these, these run- local runners that much prior to the 70 Washington birthday marathon. But as I was getting ready now or running with them through the summer and fall of 70, and they were all starting to get uh, gear their training. And these races would get longer and longer and longer, finally 15 miles, 18 miles, then a 20 miler sometime in January. And they were all getting ready for the Washington birthday marathon. And, you know, I, I knew the marathon was 26.2 miles. That was about the most I knew about it. One of my Arizona teammates had gone up and run the Culver city marathon and had run very well. Uh, there. So I, I kind of, it was percolating in the back of my mind. I said, okay, well, this is the opportunity I'm going to train for and run this marathon like everybody else. So that was my first marathon, uh, the Washington birthday marathon 71 in February. And uh, I was running well, I was winning a lot of these, I was contending in, 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 you know, to win a lot of these local road races. I was running well. And, uh, and some of the Georgetown runners who in between seasons would come out and run on these races too. And I just see these guys in Georgetown uniforms and they were always competitive. Sometimes I'd beat them. Sometimes they'd beat me, but, um, it was a little bit later and, and enters into the story uh, a little bit later on how I got to know some of these guys and how that led into new things. But anyway, so I ran that first marathon and, uh, was running with one of those Georgetown guys. Actually, we ran about the first 20 miles together. Now I ran into a little bit of problem. I fell off the pace a little bit, but I recovered. Lo and behold, I caught back up to that runner, Justin Gubbins, was his name from Long Island. <clears throat> we know, already known to be a, a pretty good marathoner. Anyway, went by him, and now all of a sudden I'm in second place. And I, I expected to, to be contending. The guy who was leading was, had been, was a ringer, brought in from New York City area. He was from Columbia, South America. And he had finished second. I think he won the silver medal in the 67 Pan Am Games Marathon. So he was, he was, he was known. So all of a sudden, but now I caught a second win and I'm closing in on him. And the, the, the traffic was all backed up behind him, half mile of traffic jam. And I'm running beside, and I'm passing all these cars. So I know I'm closing on him. And finally I get up close and his cheerleader, his, his buddies who had driven down from New York with him were all in the car right behind him. And they saw me coming and they start screaming to him in Spanish. <laughs> so, but I caught him by surprise and kind of blew by him and uh, beat him to the finish line. And lo and behold, I won the doggone thing. 
and I had Coast Guard wasn't giving me any real support. I had kind of put stickum letters on my my shirt that said Coast Guard, and most of them had fallen off uh, in the race. So they asked me about that in the post race interview. And here I'm thinking afterwards, I'm, oh my God, I'm slandering the Coast Guard. I'm going to get into trouble. Well, <laughs> sure enough, I show up to work the next morning and the coach or my uh, my boss, the uh, petty officer, uh, warrant officer boss said, hey, Fultz, congratulations. Good job. They want to see you over at headquarters. And I'm like, oh my God, no. <laughs> well, it turned out a good thing. Go put your whites on and headquarters over in DC. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. So I drive over to headquarters. Turns out, they had seen this because it was Washington birthday marathon. Monday was a holiday. So this was, must've been Tuesday, you know, so there was nothing in the, in the newspapers uh, sports wise there on the sports page of the Washington post. So they put the marathon on the front page of the sports page of the post. And these guys over in headquarters, young um, guys who had just recently graduated from the Academy and stuff, they were runners and, and, you know, athletes. So they saw who the hell is this Coastie, you know, who just won the marathon. So boom, they had me over, spent all day with them. Um, and wanted to know about my training and what was going on. And, and, uh, and then when I, and then we had lunch, the whole thing. So when I was leaving, they said, Oh, by the way, we'll put your papers in um, your rotation papers in special services. So you can go anywhere. The coast guard has a base to train as long as you keep racing and representing the coast guard. I said, that's a great deal. But I was now living off base and I was having a great time. We were going into Georgetown on the weekends. I had my training partners, a few of them, and I did a lot of my running on my own still. But I said, great, I'll stay right here. And so I never got shipped out to one of those icebreakers or, you know, the end of the Aleutian Island. Forget the Aleutians, yeah. Forget yeah. the Aleutians. So I really, so my running now for the first time in a way really, has taken off in, 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 in my life. Did that victory, because I, again, want to be sensitive because we got a lot still to cover here. Did that yeah. victory qualify you for the 72 trials? Was that fast enough to get you? Uh, that No, it did not. That wasn't okay. fast enough. I ran 229.58. So, <laughs> and, and back then, that landmark was 230. If you ran under 230, you were considered to be pretty good. So I just dip, nipped under Just that. missed that. So, uh, so you that meant you probably had to run an, another marathon within a relatively short period of time to qualify for 72. What, what I, race did you do? I, and, I ran, I ran several more. So, so I came up the next month or two months later and ran Boston. In uh, 72. In 72. No, okay. 71. 71. 71. Okay. 71. Yeah. So your first, your first boss was 71. Okay. That yeah. was earlier yeah. than I thought by about two years. Okay. No. Nope. So when I was in the coast, when I was in the service running, you know, a lot of military events as well on the track and, and, and whatnot, I had met Ken Meisner, who was on the Florida track club with Jeff Galloway and bachelor and shorter and all those guys. So he and I trained a lot together from time to time. He was stationed in DC area in the air force. And so I, through him, I think I met Jeff Galloway at one of these, at an open meet that we were all at. So Jeff was at the 71 Boston Marathon and somehow I ran into him running the race and but a bing we ran together a good section of that race. He finished 11th, I finished right behind him in 12th and that was the big kickoff because I'm thinking when I first started thinking Boston I'm thinking ah, I could get in the top 100 and then I'm thinking eh, things are going pretty well maybe top 50 and then top 25 in my mind and so when I got you know I really really wasn't sure because this was the big leagues to us, right? And yeah, and I, hadn't, I hadn't run outside of the local area. So anyway, I was ecstatic to finish 12th. And I said, wow, I kind of think I belong. So, so I want to fast forward a little bit here. Um, 
So where was the trials? How did that go? And then can we pivot a little bit more now to when you're getting more serious about Boston and maybe 73 and then getting into the run for the yep. hoses in 76? Okay, so well, the next year, so I, we kept running um, that fall. I think it was the, uh, that winter I learned of an international military cross-country meet that's held every year. So I learned, out, learned what I had to do to try and qualify for that. And lo and behold, I did uh, call, let me see, was it that year? I may, have, I may have my years mixed up now. But regardless, I was still running marathons as well and ran one in the fall, came back and ran Boston the next spring of 72. Uh, didn't run as well as I did in 71. And Tom Dedarian chronicled all that. So I have to go back to his book to refresh my memory. But then I ran the U.S. National Marathon to get qualified for the trials. And it was between Boston. I think it was in May. It was in New York. And I remember I beat Ron, Ron Dawes, who was on the 68 team. So I wasn't the only one to beat him. A lot of guys beat him. He didn't <laughs> run that particularly well. So, but anyway, I qualified for the trials. I think I ran the 224, something like that. And that qualified me for the Olympic trials. So, so you dropped from 239 to 224 in pretty short order. Or 229. 229, sorry. Yes, right, I'm right. sorry. So down yeah. to 224, right. So yeah. so things were, yeah, things were going well. And uh, yeah, I ran 224, I think it was, at that national championship, uh, national marathon. And that was, I believe, in May. And the trials were in June because they were part of the track trials every year back then. So people used to say, well, Americans don't have much of a chance because they're running the qualifying race too close to the Olympic Games. Well, in 72, they did that, but we finished first, fourth, and ninth in the Olympics. And then in 76, they did it again, and we finished second, fourth, and 40th, which was Rogers, who was only not in the top three because of an injury. So, and they just set the American record the year before, and then two on, you know, two oh nine. So, right. But my point being, the proximity yeah. of the Olympic trials, U.S. To trials that. to the marathon, was not affecting the U.S. runners at that um, time. Thing. It was a bit. It was a different issue. We, it was the, the the issue was that the rest of the world had not caught up to us. Back yeah. Then. So Jack. anyway. So so Jack, were you still in D.C. during all this time, and were you still involved in the Coast Guard? Or did you when grad school or? No, dur during that time, we're still in the early 70s here, 72, uh, 71, 72. I was in the Coast Guard until 73. Right. It was a okay. four year commitment from 69 to 73. So I was in the Coast Guard through this first Boston, first marathon, first Boston, second Boston, and then the Olympic trials in 72. It was great. I was on the West Coast for six weeks getting temporary duty pay. I was getting paid double to be on the Coast Guard. I was letting my hair grow, grew a mustache, the whole thing. And no, you know, no one was looking after me. I was out there with all these other military guys, guys on the Marine Corps, Eurus Luzens and uh, Howie Michael. You know, these guys were great, great runners back then. And, um, and you know, I befriended all of them. And, and, you know, we went to the national championship in Northern California. I didn't, hadn't qualified for that on the track. So I was just there training with these guys. Went up to Seattle for another big meet and then, um, and then down to Eugene, Oregon for the, for the track trials. And the, Olympic Mar the Olympics was the last day of the track trials. And, um, you know, I didn't, I was still a complete novice. I had my head, head who knows where. But uh, I was still learning. I was just a neophyte and learning. And, uh, and it was a fabulous experience. I learned a lot. Sadly, I got sick to death about just the week before the marathon. 
and I was in bed sweating with a summer flu for two days, just in the dorm room, nobody around me, you know, I didn't, you know, the, the guys I was with them when they get near me because they would get sick. So I suffered, but I recovered about three days before the trial started feeling good. So I don't know to what degree that played a role. It was a hot day. And, and yeah. I ended up, so here's, here's it. Let me finish this story. If I may, it's, um, so if we didn't finish the marathon in 2.30, they told us because we finished back on the track the last day of the trials. And the last event was the, the 5K with Prefontaine running against George Young, who had won the, the bronze medal in the steeplechase in 68 and was also a University of Arizona grad. And I met him when I was running cross country down there and, and uh, you know, congratulated him, had the chutzpah to go up and introduce myself, congratulate him on his bronze medal. And he was so angry that he hadn't won the gold that he really kind of poo-pooed it. He, a great guy, great guy though. And so anyway, they told us at the 72 trials, that, look, if you're not going to finish in two and a half hours, you won't get to finish because we have to close the gate. And, um, you know, race started at whatever, 4.30 in the afternoon. It was brutally hot. And um, anyway, so at 25 miles, I was with us, the, the, the caboose crew in the marathon. We were just struggling to get through to, to finish. And then sure enough, the meat wagon came by and said, hey, guys, According to your pace and what time it is right now, you're not going to get in. You're not going to be able to finish. So do you want to ride back anyway? And I said, yes, and yes, indeed. I want to see that race. So, <laughs> so we, a bunch of us jumped in the meat wagon. So I DNF that, that race. I didn't care. I was, you know, it's just, I was just garnering experiences. Go back and I'm standing on the infield watching that whole 5,000 meter race between Prefontaine and, and George Young. I'm probably one of the very few in the whole stadium cheering for George Young because of our Wildcat connection in Arizona. Yeah, this was the this was the house that pre-built, right? So uh, anyway, it was it was an incredible race, incredible experience. I had a fabulous time. And then went back home and uh, you know, can had some well, more running to anyway. So well, I, I've got to say this is this is the marvelous element of talking with you, Jack, because you, you <laughs> talk about going literally to the the beginning, the core of some of these marvelous uh, uh, formative experiences in the in the running boom. You talk about shorter. You talk about Prefontaine. Some of these really seminal figures right. that um, you know have informed and probably influenced all of us here in some way, shape, or form on on the call. You mm -hmm. mentioned that uh, that seventy two marathon and the heat well when we talk about heat in the marathon <laughs> we have to fast forward here to oh, okay. what is probably one of your most notorious in the best possible use of the word right uh, races of all time and that is the 1976 well-known run for the hoses right. fast forward very quickly if you can what uh what kind of brings you i don't think you're living in boston in 76 maybe i'm wrong on that but um give us a quick uh, give us a quick uh update get us up there and okay. and and fill us in give us a sense of, of of the day and and how that experience got started okay well uh, the georgetown runners i ran ran with and against uh when i was in the coast guard i told you about through them i got to know the coach and the 72 trials, Joe Lucas, who had won the NCAA championship, was at Georgetown, set the NCAA record. He was running the steeple there. That that one runner I mentioned, Justin Gubbins from Long Island, um, he was he had qualified for the marathon. And the coach from Georgetown was out there. So I got to know him very, very well. Had another year in the service. By the time I got out, they recruited me um, full ride at Georgetown uh, to run. I still had NCAA eligibility, two and a half years worth. So I matriculated to Georgetown, started running for them in 73, 
74, 75. I'm on the track. I'm on cross country running well, you know, having a good time, but never made all American, you know, never finished in top three at the NCs, anything like that. Went to the NCs outdoors, went to the NCs cross country. We finished seventh as a team. Anyway, so we were doing well, but I still felt like things weren't happening. My fifth year was, you know, 75, 76. I was a 50 year senior now. I was going to graduate. My NCA eligibility had expired, had was gone now for cross country and outdoor track. I did have indoors, which I ran for Georgetown that year. But so, uh, so I was, I said, I was going back to the roads. 76 was Olympic year. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to start training for the marathon again, up my mileage and go back to the roads and, and uh, try to uh, qualify for the trials. And who knows what's going to happen? I mean, 76, we had Rogers coming, you know, set the American record at Boston with his victory, the first victory there in 75. Schroeder was coming back and was still present. So it was like, it was pretty much a race for third place to make that team anyway. But I was just mostly concerned with making the trials. And so I trained all fall and, uh, you know, took a shot at making at getting my qualifier in January that went south. Um, ran indoors for Georgetown for through January, February. Um, into March, I ran and took another crack at getting a qualifier in March because the trials marathon was in June, as I said, and I wanted to be rested going into it. And um, I knew I was ready to qualify easy. Qualifying was the A standard was 220, the B standard was 223. You made the B standard, you had to pay your own way. A standard, they cover your expenses. So I wanted that. And also, if I couldn't make the A standard, I, I knew there was no way I had a snowball's chance of making the team either. But I thought I was, who knows, maybe 216, 217 shape. It was, I hadn't done it, but I was so much better athlete than last time I'd run a marathon three years earlier. That's what brought me to Boston. I had I still didn't have my qualifier. All the other top American marathoners, were they were out of school. So they qualified through 75, including a lot of them in that 75 race that was fast for everybody not just bill everybody did uh ran very fast there and a lot of guys ran their prs and qualified so but i didn't wasn't part of that so anyway i came to boston to run my qualifier for the trials that's what brought me to boston in 76 so and it it affected the entire dynamic of that race for me because yep sure enough you know i'm, I'm thinking I, I i need a a strong field to run against which is you know goes without saying at boston um, and nice conditions. I need a cool day to run a fast race. The heat is an, a marathoner's number one enemy. Well, as you already said, you know, it, it wasn't just warm. It was hot. It was, it was 96 degrees on the thermometer. Somebody said the thermometer on the, on the, um, uh, the service station out in Hopkinton read uh, in excess of hundred degrees. And we knew it was hotter than that on the pavement. It was like a scene out of Dune. You know, the, the ripples were just coming off the pavement. <laughs> so we were dousing ourselves in the open fire hydrants and stuff before the start of the race. And boom, we took off. But, you know, I was speed trained because all the track work I had done for years on, at Georgetown. And so I knew I, I had to throttle back because of the heat. And I got and turns out and we didn't know what pace we were running. There were no clocks on the course. We didn't have watches, really. Um, there were no water stops, official water stops. But somebody, had a guy, guy named Jack Leidig, his wife was a real good runner back then. And he made that sign to put on the front of the bus that hose the runners. That's how the race became known as the run for the hoses. And so people were, they were all out with garden hoses. I mean, I think it was being broadcast on the radio and they were, uh, the, the announcers were saying, everybody bring your garden hoses out, hose these runners down and whatnot. So they were, it was, it was just a, a rainbow of, of, of garden hoses the whole way. I'm zigzagging, running in the lawns, 
ran under a step ladder with a garden hose up like a shower stopped and took a <laughs> took a 10 second shower under that did everything i could to stay wet and cool but i also pace wise i was i knew i had to stay well within myself but i didn't know where we, we didn't know where we were vis-a-vis time and yet i needed a time you you had mentioned and okay yeah you had mentioned in a, a previous podcast or in an article or two um that you had approached this race with a real sense of analytics mm-hmm. in that you you knew that based on past years, past projections and all that, mm-hmm. you knew you needed to be in a certain place, relatively right. speaking, mm-hmm. regardless of time. Psychologically, when you add the heat to that, how did you adjust? And uh, not to interrupt the tale, but mm-hmm. but can you kind of tease that or, or bring that in as well as you describe that? Yeah, uh, no, actually, your question is, is really part of uh, enables me to tell uh, elaborate a little bit on the tale. I did. I looked at the because there weren't no clocks out there and I knew that I'd run Boston three times. Um, I looked at previous results and to get under 220 on a good day. If I was in the top 10, I was likely going to get pulled down to a sub 220. And that would get me my qualifier. So while I'm running for time, I'm mostly time conscious. I have to run for place and use my place in the race to get me there. So I'm thinking anything inside the top 10 is my my primary goal. And that will get me my time. So when it turned out to be hot and I'm uh, everyone's going to slow down while well, we're all wondering how much is this heat going to slow us down? I'm thinking on an ideal day, I really believed I was ready for maybe a 216, 217. And I'm thinking, ah, the heat's going to hit affect everybody pretty much the same. That wasn't necessarily so, but that was the assumption I made. And if it costs me five minutes, I'm still under the 223 standard. So same top 10 still gets me a qualifier. It's just a B qualifier rather than an A. So other than that, nothing changed for me in my mind. And so I didn't change any of my race strategy whatsoever, other than, you know, chasing the garden hoses. And, uh, and then grabbing a, grabbing an occasional orange slice from from one of the kids handing them out. And um, so I, you know, I started out very conservatively and everybody else, as they always do at Boston, regardless of the conditions, went out way too fast. And you, I'm sorry, I'm fascinated in, in the sense of do you think the fact that you were focusing on place, having adjusted in your mind for the time? Mm-hmm. Do you think that had, had played a, a significant role in the ultimate performance, the way it ultimately ended? Well, it, yes, but in not in the way it might seem intuitively obvious that mm-hmm. as a racer, okay. you run against the other guys, right? And you use strategy and go against what they're doing, try to see see where they are and play yourself against them. Most marathoners, 90, unless you're racing to win or finishing the top three, in a marathon, you're time trialing. You got to learn how to let play out your energy and run the most efficient race you can if you're going to run smart what the way this uh, worked for me is because i needed to get my fast time i wanted to get in the i needed to get in the top 10 but the faster the everybody else in the race ran the faster i was likely to run so i was in my mind i'm using them to help me run fast so now they're not my enemy they're my ally they're like my teammates in my mind the faster they run, the faster I'm going to run. So I've been through the whole gamut of, of competitive athletics, you know, from the, the butterflies in the stomach when you're getting lining up for the important races and the, you know, the championship meets and everything. So 
So I, um, that changed that whole dynamic. All of a sudden, I was so incredibly relaxed at the starting line, even though there was so much on the, on the line for me in this race uh, to try and make the trials qualifying time. <clears throat> I was just, I was just, you know, I said, you know, nobody here is a threat to me. They're all my allies. So hold that thought right there, John. What you want to so, do? So you said you went out conservatively. At what mile did you say, okay, I think I might have a chance to win this thing? When did they all people start runners start coming back? You know, was it yeah. Cleveland Circle? Was it Brook, you know, Brookline? Yeah. It was it Yeah, it know, was it was actually Beacon much Street. earlier. It was much earlier than that, actually. Probably, you know, at the first mile mark, I was probably back in the pack and there were probably a hundred of us within uh, within a hundred yards of each other but I was in the back of that pack. And then it slowly started thinning out by five miles. I was maybe in the top 25 or so. There were still a lot of guys out there in front of me, but within reaching distance. It wasn't until I got to Wellesley, you know, that big long stretch is a downhill stretch. It runs past Wellesley College. And uh, you're about the 12 mile mark right along there. And um, and there was, they were finding an official out there, a BA official uh, checking time, checking bib numbers. And he yelled to me, you're in 10th place. And that was the first time I knew exactly what place I was in. And at that point, also, you can there's a long stretch of the of the of the the course that you can see. So I could see a half mile up ahead of me and see the top ten guys strung out in single file all the way. So when he said you're in tenth place, in my mind again, I'm thinking my job's almost done. I, and I didn't even feel like I'd started running. I wasn't even getting warmed up, or I was you know still warming up. I was just so incredibly comfortable with my pace. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is all going to happen for me now. I'm going to get my qualifier, even though I didn't know what my pace was at the time. Um, I was just, you know, I said, top 10, it's going to get me there. And so I was just so drilled in uh, mentally to that. So anyway, over the next four miles, they all came back to me. I wasn't overtly going after them. I was still staying right in my own rhythm and pace. And one by one, they came back and finally, you know, it was, I think it was, I was going past Newton Wellesley hospital and there were two guys up there in front of me. And, and I kind of knew that they, that they were second and third place. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in fourth place. And I'm moving on these guys. This is amazing. And then all of a sudden Billy Squires, who I'd never really met, but he came running out and I learned afterwards who it was. And, and he handed me some ice cube, handful of ice cubes said, here, rub these on your arms, right? Cool yourself off. And I did. And they were almost gone by the time I caught those two guys and I handed the ice cubes to them. It was a little bit of a ploy. I remember in my mind, I'm thinking, if I hand these to these guys, they'll think I, you need these more than me. <laughs> right. So, so a little bit of a, a, a little competitive nudge, uh, I suppose, to some degree, but also I, you know, I was, I got the benefit from them. So anyway, hand them to them and continued on. And they didn't, they didn't contest at all. They didn't run along with me. So they were starting to struggle and I was moving forward. So all of a sudden now I'm in second place. And this is now, now from a place standpoint, John, and you know, I'm thinking, when I'm thinking top 10, I'm thinking top 10, but now I'm in second and I'm realizing, okay, I'm liable to win this thing now. And that changed the dynamics for me mentally. Now, can we pause just here for a second? Um, you're now down to the uh, top two. And mm -hmm. where are you at that point exactly in the right, race? Just about right around the firehouse at 17, just a little past 17 mile mark. Okay. So we still have heartbreak ahead. You still have, have Cleveland all the circle have, ahead. Right. Have most of the hills ahead. Yeah. One quick clarifying question. 
do you consider yourself a heat runner? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is how were you able to, if not, I mean, I, you liked Arizona, you're thinking about going to Florida, you know, all of those good things. Right. How do you ignore the heat in this quest, so to speak? Yeah. Or, or how does that factor in consciously as you think about it, you know, vis-a-vis -vis place, 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 I worry about the time after I worry about the place? Or mm -hmm. did it, you know, kind of enter your consciousness? Right. Well, as I said, leading up to the race, as I'm analyzing, how much is this heat going to affect my ultimate goal? It's going to slow us down for sure. But in terms of my ultimate goal there, it didn't play a negative. It was not going to have a negative effect. At least I had concluded that for myself. And then, as I say, I, there was a lot of water on the course. It was just not official water stops per se. But there was a lot of water out there. And I took advantage of all of it. I stayed very wet the whole way. And as I say, because I was speed trained, now I'm running. I, I learned after the fact I ran very even pace the whole way. And I'm running 520, five, five minutes, 20 seconds a mile, which to me was that was, you know, I, I trained faster than that a lot uh, on the road. I go out for 10, 12 mile runs. I'm running five, close to five minute pace. And uh, because of all the track stuff I had done. So I was very, very comfortable. And, and as I say, just mentally very relaxed because I never let the competitive angst of that cut into my psychic energy, so to speak. And and as we all know, you know, the, you know this, the inner game of tennis written by Timothy Galway talks very much about that, you know, letting the subconscious mind run the show and get the conscious mind, the ego out of the action. And that's when that's when people experience flow or find the zone. You know, we've all heard these terms. I was completely in that the whole race to the point where once I turned from the firehouse and started heading up that first Brayburn Hill, that's when I saw the press bus, which, which was with the leader, Richard Mabuza from Swaziland. He'd run 212 the year before. He was a contender along with Jack Foster, who had run 211 the, in 74 and set the master's world record. I just, he was in fourth place when I passed him and then those other two runners. And so I, when I come around the bend, there's the press bus. I see M Mabuza and, and he's, I can tell when I'm getting closer, he's struggling. He's not running the tangent or anything. Uh, Will Clooney sticks out. I want to sneak up on him. I don't want to see him coming. That's a classic track, track tactic, right? You just, you, you want to blow by them so that you discourage them when you go by. And uh, that was my plan. Uh, but it didn't turn out it wasn't necessary. He was on the other side of the road. I was running the tangent. So I was opposite the road. We crossed. I caught up with him. He looks at me. Will Clooney had already yelled out his megaphone, make way. There's another runner coming. <laughs> Shut up. You're blowing my cover. <laughs> uh, and when I got up beside Mabuza, but across the road from him, I looked over. We looked at each other. I could just see it in his eyes. Everything was gone. You know, and, and I actually felt empathy for the poor guy. You know, his race was over. I was feeling great and and just and moving, moving on. And I had been in that position. We all been in that position, you know, where you went out too fast or you're struggling in a race and 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 guys are going by you. And and it's not just not a pretty place to be. And I knew he was in that space. I'd been there. I could identify with it, but I wasn't. And so I got back into my own mindset right away. And uh, and boom, all of a sudden I am in the lead get in front of the, the bus and there's the photography truck. And they're all yelling at me, asking me who I am. Unbeknownst to me, my bib number, and I had cut it into two little digits 
which was the same number Bill Rogers had the year before when he won 14. Anyway, it had the numbers had curled up because of all the water, so you couldn't see them. They were it was like I didn't have a bib number on. All I had was Georgetown across my singlet. So they didn't know who I was, and they kept yelling, "Who are you?" I wouldn't tell them. Of course, I no way I was going to tell them. Did, did now did did that take psychic energy, or was it more cat and mouse, and and actually took your mind off it? Do you think it was? Uh, yeah, it was the latter. It was almost. Uh, it was yeah. It was almost a little entertainment. You know, I was because okay. I was now almost giddy anyway. And now this is going on. They're asking me. I'm having a conversation with these guys. They they're wondering who I am. I knew, but I wouldn't tell. I mean, I wouldn't tell them something they wanted to know. And so it was kind of fun. And it was a little dist- positively distracting. Um, I'm glad you knew who you were at that point, Jack. At least exactly. you know you didn't get too dehydrated. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Ask me who I am nowadays. And I, I tell my wife when I forget who I am, you know, <laughs> give me the pill. And anyway, so um, finally, it was Jeff Johnson who, you know, came up with the name for Nike and was the first employee at Nike. He was an amateur photographer then, still is to this day. And most of the photographs I have of myself, which aren't uh, during the race, which aren't that many, because most of the guys had already shot all their film and it was film rather than digital back then. Um, but he he shot, he still had film and shot it. And but they didn't have to go too far down the list of numbers. I was number 14 to see someone from George, the Georgetown affiliation. So that's, but interestingly enough, they, Jeff thought I was Justin Gubbins, my Georgetown teammate and roommate who was instrumental in getting me to Georgetown in the first place. Um, so, because he was known, as I say, he had run Boston before too, and his name was known in the marathoning circles and mine from, was not. Uh, from Long Island, right? That's the guy from Correct. Long Island. Yeah. Right, right. And he had, and he and I had run that March marathon. He went on to win it. I dropped out to save my, save it for, for Boston. So anyway, so I got a big kick out of that too. A little little today. Now I wasn't about to carry a conversation. Hey, let me tell you how I know Justin. But um, but anyway, so they finally figured that out, and now I'm back into the race. And I had to now remind myself, hey, you know, we still got a lot of work to to do, a long way to go. I'm still feeling absolutely great, uh, running wise. Even had one of those little transcendent out of body experiences. You know, was. Because now I'm lead, I'm winning the race. I'm leading it. This is a you know a dream come true. We all fantasize of doing things like this as as competitive runners back in the day, and never really knowing if something like this is going to happen. But you fantasize with it through your training. Yeah, I'm I'm winning the Boston Marathon, and um, and having finished 12th my first year five years earlier, there's no reason for me to not think I can contend you know, in, in in at this race. So so but now it's actually happening, and I'm and my mind's kind of spinning around and I have to kind of keep keep it together but there was an occasion I remember that all of a sudden my mind is up here above me it's almost like I'm my mind is watching all this happen I would de- detached from it. it's the classic example of a transcendent experience right and and this is all happening and it's quite all fascinating but I I remember cognitively working to pull it all back together so you have to stay you have to stay in the present here you have to maintain your physical control of what you're doing, not let this get away from you. And so that's, you know, I, I put my, my mental energy into doing that. Finally, the, 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 the um, photography truck got out of my way. It was, they were right beside me a couple of times. I wanted to run the tangent and they're telling the drivers, stay close, stay close. So we can get some pictures, a few of them, and I'm having to shoo them out of the way. But anyway, so finally get up to about the 22 mile mark and my calves start to cramp a little bit. I felt perfectly fine, but now my calves are cramping. Moment of panic. John, 
Yeah. You've been at that 22 uh, mile mark a bunch of times now, more than Jack has, I believe. Possibly. You want to yeah. jump in there, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, just the way he told the story that it almost sounded like the perfect race, you know, in, th in those conditions, you know, you just, it's just like, this, this is how you want to do it. You don't want to go out, you know, in the lead in a day like that. It's just, you know, Jack wasn't really there to win it, but he was open to qualify for the trials, but, but just the way the whole thing, you know, being there Wellesley and seeing the line and seeing the truck. And then you, you know, you're saying to yourself, you haven't even felt you started yet. That's just an amazing story. I'm so glad I got, I got a chance to hear it. So well, now you're at 22 though, and yeah. it's not yeah. going so well. Mm -hmm. I, well, it was, wasn't that it wasn't going well, but as they started to cramp, I, I had a moment of panic. And John, it wasn't that I, I, I wasn't there to win. I was there to finish in the top 10. Right. Winning, yeah. Wasn't, yeah. Wasn't out of, right. out of my mind. I didn't, mm -hmm. but, it, but in fact, I didn't let that get in my way also. Mm -hmm. right. Years and years later, I talked to a top contender here at Boston and I encouraged her I, because she was three minutes faster than anybody else in the field. So anything short of victory was an abject failure to her. And I encouraged her to not, position it that way for yourself puts a lot of pressure on you if you think if i don't win i'm mm -hmm. i've failed right and that's and 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 you know if anything we humans tend to confirm our greatest fears to ourselves so if your greatest fear is not winning you're much more likely to one way or another sabotage your efforts subconsciously mm -hmm. or whatever and just not have that kind of race that i was having because mm -hmm. i didn't let that that did not get in my way but now all of a sudden I am leading and now it's now the mindset starts going to that. The ego is involved now saying you're not just running here. You're winning a race and you have to do what you need to do to preserve the, you know, this. So back to the 22 mile mark, as my calves started cramping now for the first time, I start to panic a little bit thinking, oh, my God, I feel great. But I'm handcuffed now if I can't you know, utilize what I've preserved here because I've got a calf cramp. And somebody's been tra possibly tracking me like I tracked these other guys, I could lose this thing. But the next thought was, hey, I'm still likely going to get my qualifying time if I don't completely collapse. So if somebody comes by and gets me, they've earned it. I'm still going to finish with a really good result here. If it's not first, it's going to be second or third or whatever. You know, it's, it's going to be my best finish so far. And I'm only 27. I'm going to be back here again. I'll take another shot at it. And just that mind, that reaction was enough to relax me. I slowed down a little bit, finally went down Ch Cleveland Circle, down Chestnut Hill Ave to Cleveland Circle and running downhill. I uh, took the pressure off my calves. And by the time I got back onto Beacon Street, boom, I was back into my role, into my flow. And just, and because people were yelling, there's no one behind you. There's no one behind you. So that took that pressure off. And, um, and boom, I was just right back in, in, in my rhythm. So, and, and maintained it all the way, uh, you know, all the way to finish. <laughs> did you, did you consciously either in the moment or reflecting back now, many years later, mm -hmm. when do you think it, it, you began to appreciate what you were doing? Did you even, I mean, really appreciate that this was actually going to happen? Was it literally in that final mile, for example, or just before you made those kind of turns that were of the day, but not now? Yeah. Or was it before and really began to be able to drink in the crowd and, and in the experience? Or, or did that happen at all? 
It did. And as I said, that once I got down to the uh, Cleveland Circle, we had four miles to go and my calves had finally relaxed. And now I was feeling, I felt perfectly fine. I was, I was just on a run by myself with a lot of people around watching me and cheering me on, but I felt perfectly fine. I felt not threatened at all. I didn't have to accelerate. Um, you know, I'm leading. So, you know, but now my mind is in the race rather than on my time. I'm not thinking about my finishing time. Now I'm just thinking about continuing on doing what I'm doing, um, not doing anything stupid, you know, so I had no reason to try and run any faster than what my body was really comfortably doing. Um, so you know, could I have run a little faster? Yeah, for sure. Um, but there was no, I didn't feel a need to. Yeah. So, yeah. so I didn't. Turns out I missed the A standard by 19 seconds. So it probably would have helped maybe oh. if I had to run a little bit faster. So when you finished, was it relief, joy, combination? It was, um, well, I, I, I kind of just stopped running because the race was over. I was not stumbling. Not in, an emotion, in, not an emotion. It's, it's just the, the, the stop of the action, was, the halt yeah, of the activity. Yeah. So that last whole, whole last four miles and, and finish up the response to your question before that I was, yeah, now I was, I was in the moment. I was asking, I was, you know, having a conversation with myself. What are they going to ask me? What am I going to say? All of that, you know, because I'm going to have a mic in my face. Probably I, I'm going to win this thing. I'm, you know, I'm winning. So I was, I was soaking it up. I was enjoying the whole thing. It was just, it felt so incredibly good. You know, it just life couldn't get any better than that. Right. So, um, so I, I very much enjoyed that whole last four miles and yeah, coming around the last band. I mean, I came across the finish line and I'm like, Oh, okay. It's over. I, I won. And, uh, and then it was just kind of a whirlwind. Of course, after that, um, they, they whisk you, up onto the finish stand and uh you know michael dukakis the governor puts the 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 wreath uh, yeah, yeah i don't know if you can yeah. see oh yeah yeah, yeah. 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 There it is. because of the background yeah. it's not coming through Let me yeah. see if can see it. <laughs> it's 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 well worn but well well worn by, by the right person uh, anyway. but yes yeah, yeah the medal cool. and the wreath the whole thing so i had those mm -hmm. framed anyway um jan brought those out for me to show you but i'll show them to you later anyway um yeah, I mean, and then and then things just kind of took off. There was the you know hour long interview sitting in a babe in the barber chair inside the Prudential, and the the barber comes in, puts a puts his grandbaby in my lap, and I'm, I'm very curious to know who that baby is today. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I have no idea. Was that was that what they did? It. I mean, did, oh, yeah. did the did the champ always sit in the chair? I mean, is that, yeah. a, I, that I, a to thing? my knowledge, that's what they did. They plop you down. I never asked. I Bill, never heard he went that here before. Um, <laughs> But they popped me down in the chair for the post-race interview, right? The whole thing. And they asked barraging me with questions. Bobby Hodge found a, a, a video of that uh, fairly recently. And we watched a little section of it. It wasn't it didn't cover the whole thing. But I remember, of course, an hour later, trying to get up out of that barber chair. Now, oh, my God, I couldn't make it. Uh, sure. course, as you can sure. imagine. But uh, but nonetheless, and, and then the whole the whole evening was a bit of a whirlwind. I ended up finally at the Elliott Lounge. Uh, after going out to dinner, the ASICs uh, people just came recruiting me, right? And which was Onitska then. And as I say, I ended up under contract with them. They took me out to dinner and then I ended up at the Mer Elliott Lounge and Bill Rogers. And that's when I first met Bill. He was on the press bus actually during the race, having already qualified for the trials and getting ready for them a month later. 
And um, so he um, he was sitting on the on the jukebox. I remember having his fourth or fifth beer, probably. And uh, that was where we first met. And we kind what of was what was it playing? What was it playing? Do you have oh, a recollection? Of I, I wish I wish I knew. Yeah, that yeah. part I can't remember. So, uh, yeah, I can make Jack, something up about that. We are we are sadly well over time, but there are a couple yeah. one or two quick things that I want to follow up on. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to we're not going to be able to hear from you actually doing it. But for our listeners, it's important to note that this he was not a one hit wonder. Jack was not a one hit wonder with this. Not only do we you know, we did get he did get his qualifier for 76 and he did qualify for the trials in 1980. But more to the point, he returned a couple of years later in 78 finishing fourth place in his still standing, I guess, now you're 75, you're probably not going to run faster than it, in 211.17. 211.17. Yeah. A gold level, you know, a standard, no, you know, definitely, uh, you know, even today and, and, and certainly something. But what we haven't talked about, and this is where I'm afraid we're going to have to end, is that that really was in the very early part of your longstanding, almost five decades long connection with Boston. In some ways, you won at once, but you have been probably in many respects among the most embedded uh, athletes in the race itself in a variety of, of capacities ever since. Mm -hmm. If you could, well, we'll leave the elite athlete piece aside for the moment. I'd love it if you could just give us a thumbnail or two Mm -hmm. about how you were really on the front edge of the marathon as an event that could lead to the better good of us all in the community and beyond. Could you give us a few thoughts and reflections on that? And I'm yeah. referring to Dana Farber at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I moved up here in 79. Um, you know, I was still competing at that time, lived through the 80s. I'm back to grad school and I was coaching some uh, young kids in the mid 80s and uh, befriended one of the kids I coached with. And by the time he then graduated from high school, I'd followed his career. He was a, um, a, a freshman at Harvard running on a cross-country team. He lost his best friend to cancer. He was treated at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And so this young friend contacted, he went over to Dana-Farber, said he wanted to volunteer because his friend was treated there and wanted to memorialize him. Met a guy over there who was a marathoner and they decided to run the marathon and he was going to raise some money in memory of his friend. And he asked me because we had stayed in touch if I would stay involved and help him train for the, help them train for the marathon. This is 1989. Um, of course I did. And we had a great, he had a fabulous experience, raised a lot of money and uh, trustees at Dana-Farber saw them do this. And they knew that the employee who ran with Mike and um, said, Hey, if you get some of your friends to run next year, we'll give you a challenge grant and all the money will go to a research program. They had started the, several years earlier. So this was 1990. I had befriended this employee now, running employee. His name's Greg Gross. And um, so he said, we're going to expand on this concept. Will you stay involved? Help us recruit some runners, train us, all of that. That was 1990. We had 19 runners, most running the, the marathon as bandits, uh, which you know an old term that we all know now, but some of the listeners may not. Bandit was somebody ran in the back without an official entry. And the BA let you do that back then. That's all come to an end. Anyway, so, but the 19 runners, they ran the marathon, they all finished, every, they raised $51,000 to get the $50,000 challenge grant, and the, um, the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge was born out of that. Fast forward 33, 34 years later, we now have 525 runners on the team, 
we raise about close to $7 million a year, have collectively raised about $125, $130 million, all of it going to innovative basic cancer research at Dana-Farber. This money is used very specifically to fund new, young, innovative, creative, brilliant scientists who don't have track records yet to get NIH funding. You know, you have to have a pretty sure thing going with a long track record already. The NIH is going to give you money because they want to, they want to, you know, back successful ventures. So it's anyway, innovation. That, it's really you're making innovation possible. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 an absolutely, you know, so I was in the right place at the right time for all this to happen. I'm a small cog in a big wheel now. The whole thing has grown. It's it's incredible. But I but I train all I train all the runners online stuff, stay very and very, very involved with all of them. I'm a member of the BAA. So I, you know, pay my dues and go to the parties. And and so I'm I'm involved in I wear many, many hats. For 10 years I or eight years, I was the elite athlete liaison. Through right. the early years of Dana Farber stuff, I did that for the marathon as well. And uh so you yeah, said- I've, I've been very fortunate to wear a lot of hats. You would be too self-deprecating probably to say this, but I imagine in some circles, they might, you know, you and Greg Gross and a few of those other folks would be kind of considered the initiators of this uh, model of the marathon as a convening force for Mm. good, um, not just for cancer, but for other things, for diabetes, for all of these other, and, Mm. and the really the groundswell of the marathon as that that I that idea. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's a? Um, we, I, I no, we don't deserve credit as innovators. But well, we were, but we not. Were, it was in, not, it was in its it was in its infancy. So time. others took the model and ran with it. Um, no, the model actually the model already existed. The BA was giving uh, uh, okay entries to a couple charities. Um, I think starting in the late eighties, maybe eighty eight, eighty nine, something like that. It was very off the radar, mm. under the radar, whatever. Um, you know, there was no broadcast and there was certainly no concept of doing charitable stuff. But the Pan Mass Challenge had been around since 1980, which was a fundraising bike ride for bike ride, uh, raise yeah. money for the Jimmy Fund. So and McGilvery did his cross country run for the Jimmy Fund in 78. So these things were were happening a bit. But but the fundraising as a concept of getting a lot of people together to run races, marathons in particular, and raise money for specific causes. That was still very much in its infancy. In so we were, we were, we were, we were some of the first guys. I don't, I wouldn't take credit for any kind of innovation per se. Not but. to, yeah, not wanting to suggest that, but just as the pebble in the pond, you were one of the first pebbles. You, we you guys, were, yeah, we definitely yeah. were that. And and yeah. and ours has just has grown and grown and grown. So, but there's no way we can look back now, uh, look back to then and say we knew we were going to grow it to what it is today there's just right you know, there's right. life is serendipitous and things happened and a lot of good things happened for us but a lot of very very dedicated people and my wife is actually the the uh, director of running programs at dana farber and we met and she started running the marathon with us and then um, long before we were married she became the director of the position so anyway you you better put her name out here jack because we you know, we <laughs> want to make sure that that Jan Ross is the director of marathon running program. She has an incredible staff of six or seven, um, all, all young women now, as it turns out, but, um, but they do an absolutely incredible job. But uh, as you said earlier, all these charitable organizations do absolutely amazing things and raise money, saving lives, um, not just from a medical standpoint, but I'm very, I'm involved um, um, somewhat with the Boston Bulldog Running Club, for example, and they work with people in recovery 
Uh, their club is about people in recovery. Some of the runners are in recovery, some of them aren't, but they know family and friends who are. And it's an incredible thing. So there are a lot of different dimensions to this now. It has grown. It's not just medical stuff, providing other social services across the board. So so it really has grown. And, you know, there was some a lot of resistance to it early on. People thinking that's, you know, this really should just be a, a competitive race and, and let that charitable stuff and the slower runners, you know, that's not really what this race is all about. But it it is what it's about largely now, not exclusively, obviously. But I think one hand washes the other. When John Hancock stepped in 1986 as the primary sponsor, first principal sponsor, and brought Boston up, you know, the marathon was dragged to the altar in this. Other races were accepting prize money for five or six years prior to that. And they finally did it about somewhat reluctantly. But now, now there's money involved. It's going to bring in the elite athletes. And, and it also provided services for all the athletes, all the runners that weren't otherwise there. So it was one hand wash and the other. And, and I think it's been a, a great collaborative thing and has brought not just Boston, but all the marathons to what they are uh, today. And, you know, it's, I mean, millions and millions, if you add it all up, it's billions of money have been raised through athletic events uh, with the participants raising money for charitable causes. There are few people in this world, certainly in this area, who have the depth and the breadth of appreciation for the event, what it has meant competitively, socially, for the greater community, than Jack Fultz. <laughs> we could have spent another hour and a half. We haven't really touched the teaching, the coaching, the mentoring that Jack has been involved with. But unfortunately, time <laughs> moves on, just like the marathon. On behalf of John Gorman and Ron Galuli, I'm Grant Whitney, and we want to thank you, Jack Foltz, for joining us for a stimulating hour-plus <laughs> conversation on the Runners yeah. Reunion podcast. Grant, thanks, and John, thanks a million for having thanks, me, and Ron, who's, who's left. But um, and thank you very much for those very flattering, kind words. Uh, I'm I'm humbled and honored. And I get and I get overtime for there you go. double time. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Jack. <laughs> Got to talk to the boss. We'll talk to the boss. Okay. All right. It was fun.